This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington As read by Leah Domes Tape number 9 And as these commissioners were all Presbyterians, they felt deeply interested in the question of the right establishment of Presbyterian church government in England according to the principles of the Solemn League of Both Nations. For this reason, they presented to the English Parliament several papers respecting the pending Treaty of Peace and the various matters involved in it, one of which necessarily was the form of religion to be established, to which the king was to be requested to give his concurrence. On the subject of religion, These papers took up the points that had so much engaged the attention of the assembly and gave their opinion in the following manner. Having perused the several ordinances, directions, and votes of the Honorable Houses Concerning Church Government delivered unto us, which we conceive will be the matter of the propositions of religion, and in this sense only we speak to them, we do agree to the direction for the present election of elders, to the subordination of congregational, classical, provincial, and national assemblies, and to the direction concerning the members of which they are constitute, and the times of their meeting. Only we desire that no godly minister be excluded from being a member of the classical presbytery, nor any godly minister having lawful commission from being a member of the provincial and national assemblies, there being the greater need of their presence and assistance in such assemblies, that there are no ruling elders to join with and assist them. And we desire that a fixed time be appointed for the ordinary meeting of the national assembly, with power to the parliament to summon them when they please and with liberty to the church to meet oftener, if there shall be necessary cause, the ordinary meeting thereof being most necessary for preserving truth and unity in the whole church, against the errors that may arise and multiply in the church, and against the divisions and differences that may distract the inferior assemblies of the church, and for receiving and determining appeals from provincial assemblies which otherwise will be infinite and lie over long without determination 
and the exigence of religion sometimes being such that it will require an extraordinary meeting. We agree to the rules and directions concerning suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in cases of ignorance and scandal. Only we desire that the congregational elderships may have power to judge in cases of scandal not enumerated, with liberty to the person grieved to appeal, as in other Reformed churches. This we conceive to be a power no more arbitrary in this church than in them who are limited by the rules expressed in Scripture, and to exercise this, their power, with such moderation as is a comfort, help, and strengthening of civil authority. The appointing of provincial commissioners, such as are appointed in the ordinance, will minister occasion to such debates and disputes in this and other churches as will be very unpleasant to parliaments and civil powers, will make a great disconformity betwixt this and other churches and a present rent and division in this church, is such a mixture in church government as hath not been heard of in any church before this time, and may prove a foundation of a new episcopacy or of a high commission. And the work may be better done by the assemblies of ministers and elders, who have this in their ecclesiastical charge, and will be no less tender of the honor of Parliament by whose laws they live and are protected, and as able and willing to give satisfaction to the people whose consciences and conversation are best known unto them as any other persons whatsoever. Concerning the suspension of the ministers themselves, although scandal in them deserveth double censure, yet we conceive it to be the most agreeable that they have their censure from the classical or other superior assemblies of the church, where there be ministers to judge them. We do also agree to the ordinance of ordination of ministers. Only we desire it may be provided that it stand in force for all time to come. There be other matters contained in the ordinances, as the manner of subordination of the assemblies of the church to the parliament, so much liable to mistake. The seeming exemption of some sorts of persons from the just censures of the church, the ministering the sacrament to some persons against the consciences of the ministry and eldership, concerning public repentance to be only before the elderships and such like, which may be taken into consideration and with small labor and alteration be determined to the great satisfaction of many. As for the remnant concerning the perpetual officers of the church and their offices, the order and power of church assemblies, the order of public repentance, and of proceeding to excommunication and absolution, we desire they may be agreed upon according to the covenant and the advice of the divines of both kingdoms long since offered to both houses, which being done, they may be presently drawn in a method and formed up in a model of church government in three days, to the quieting the minds of all the godly concerning the particular meaning of both kingdoms in the matter of religion, 
to the great content of the Reformed churches, and which will both make us distinctly to know what we demand, and the king what he doth grant. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 6, pages 254 and 255. End of footnote. Within a few days after these papers had been laid before the English Parliament, and before the two houses had returned any answer, they were printed and published with a preface, as from a private person into whose hands they had fallen by accident, purporting to state the case between the Parliament and the Scottish Commissioners. Footnote. Bailey informs us that David Buchanan was the person by whom they were published. Volume 2, page 367. End of footnote. Both houses were exceedingly indignant that such liberty should be taken with their proceedings, and on the 14th of April concurred in a vote that the matter contained in these printed papers was false and scandalous against the Parliament and Kingdom of England, that they should be burned by the common hangman, that a declaration should be drawn up refuting their untruths and showing the innocence and integrity of the Parliament, and that the author or publisher was an incendiary between the two kingdoms. And on the 21st of April, the preface was burnt, as had been ordered, but not the papers of the Scottish commissioners. The declaration published by the Parliament for their own vindication was characterized by equal intemperate heat and bitterness, and contained a very strong assertion of the Erastian theory, colored, however, by the pretext of their dread of the consequences which might ensue from granting an arbitrary and unlimited power and jurisdiction to near 10,000 judicatories to be erected within this kingdom, and asserting that they had the more reason by no means to part with this power out of the hands of the civil magistrate since the experience of all ages will manifest that the reformation and purity of religion and the preservation and protection of the people of God in this kingdom hath under God been by the parliaments and their exercise of this power. How easy it is to make bold and general assertions, but had the English parliament been required to produce proofs and instances in maintenance of their self-complacent assertion, they would have found that they had undertaken no easy task. And it might have occurred to them that such vehemence of conduct and language might be very fairly interpreted into a proof that they were aware that they had acted wrong, and that their anger arose from the painful and mortifying consciousness of being detected in the commission of what was manifestly culpable. But even yet, an English Parliament can reason and act in a similar manner, untaught by the bitter experience of their ancestors, and unable to read the signs of the times, however close the resemblance which these bear to a former period. Not even this manifestation of the Parliament's stormy temper could appall the assembly of divines, although the city ministers had somewhat quailed. Mr. Marshall, by no means one of the most rash or impetuous of the brethren, arose in his place, 
and after referring to the recent ordinance and stating that there were several things in it which pressed heavily upon his conscience and upon the consciences of many others, he moved that a committee might be appointed to examine what points in this ordinance were contrary to their consciences and to prepare a petition on the subject to be presented to the two houses. This was accordingly done and presented by the whole assembly with Mr. Marshall at their head on the 24th of March. The main topics of the petition were an assertion of the divine right of Presbyterian church government and a complaint against that cause in the recent ordinance which appointed an appeal from the censures of the church to a committee of the parliament. The house appears to have been somewhat staggered by this decided course adopted by the assembly and appointed a committee to consider what answer should be given and what notice should be taken of the manner in which the petition had been brought forward. The report of the committee was characterized by deep policy. First, they gave it as their opinion that the Assembly of Divines had, in their recent petition, violated the privileges of Parliament and incurred the penalties of a premier. And next, they proposed that since the Assembly insisted on the just venom of the Presbyterian government, certain queries which they had prepared respecting that point might be sent to the Assembly and the divines required to return answers to the satisfaction of the Parliament. The House approved of the committee's report, and on the 30th of April sent Sir John Evelyn, Mr. Fines, and Mr. Brown to state to the Assembly the sentiments of the House and to require answers to the prepared list of interrogations. These questions display so clearly the captious character and petulant temper of the Erastians, even while pretending to be merely desiring satisfaction to their scruples of conscience, that we think it expedient to insert them here. Questions propounded to the Assembly of Divines by the House of Commons touching the point of just venom in the matter of church government. Whereas it is resolved by both houses that all persons guilty of notorious and scandalous offenses shall be suspended from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The House of Commons desires to be satisfied by the Assembly of Divines in the questions following. 1. Whether the parochial and congregational elderships appointed by ordinance of Parliament or any other congregational or presbyterial elderships are jure divino and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ, and whether any particular church government be jure divino, and what that government is. 2. Whether all the members of the said eldership, as members thereof, or which of them, are jure divino, and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ. 3. Whether the superior assemblies or elderships namely the classical, provincial, and national, whether all or any of them, and which of them are jure divino, and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ. 4. Whether appeals from the congregational elderships to the classical, provincial, or national assemblies, or any of them, 
and to which of them are Joe Divino? And are there powers upon such appeals Joe Divino, and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ? 5. Whether ecumenical assemblies are Joe Divino, and whether there be appeals from any of the former assemblies to the said ecumenical Joe Divino, and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ. 6. Whether by the word of God, the power of judging and declaring, what are such notorious and scandalous offenses, for which persons guilty thereof are to be kept from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and of convening before them, trying and actual suspending from the sacrament, such offenders accordingly is either in the congregational eldership or presbytery, or in any other eldership, congregation, or persons, and whether such persons are in them only, or in any of them, and in which of them Jordavino, and by the will and appointment of Jesus Christ. 6. Whether there be any certain and particular rules expressed in the word of God to direct the elderships or presbyteries, congregations or persons, or any of them, in the exercise and execution of the powers aforesaid. And what are those rules? 8. Is there anything contained in the Word of God that the supreme magistracy in a Christian state may not judge and determine what are the aforesaid notorious and scandalous offenses and the manner of suspension for the same. And in what particulars concerning the premises is the said supreme magistracy by the word of God excluded? 9. Whether the provision of commissioners to judge of scandals not enumerated, as they are authorized by the ordinance of Parliament, be contrary to that way of government which Christ hath appointed in his church, and wherein are they so contrary? In answer to these particulars, the House of Commons desires of the Assembly of Divines their proofs from Scripture, and to set down the several texts of Scripture in the express words of the same. And it is ordered that every particular minister of the Assembly of Divines that is or shall be present at the debate of any of these questions do upon every resolution which shall be presented to this House concerning the same, subscribe his respective name, either with the affirmative or negative, as he gives his vote. Footnote. This was evidently for the purpose of intimidation. End of footnote. And those that do dissent from the major part shall set down their positive opinions, with the express text of Scripture upon which their opinions are grounded. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 6, pages 260 and 261. End of footnote. It is not difficult to perceive the bitter hostility against every kind and degree of spiritual jurisdiction which pervades these questions. Nor yet is it difficult to detect the sophistical fallacy which forms the basis of the whole. In these arresting questions, there is a constant endeavor to keep a variety of details prominently before the mind, so as to obscure the main principle 
as far as possible. And even when the proper question of principle is stated, it is done in the same manner. Whether any particular church government be jure divino, the very essence of the inquiry is whether there be in the word of God church government. And if that be affirmed, then the question arises what that government is. With regard to all matters of detail on which the parliamentary Erastians love to dilate, these would naturally arise either from scripture precept or scripture practice, applied as enlightened reason might dictate and emergencies require. But the assembly was composed of men well able to detect the sophistry of their opponents, and therefore they declined entering, in the first place into a series of detailed and circumstantial answers. But as they had been previously led to investigate very fully the same subject in the course of their own deliberations while framing the confession of faith, they proceeded to state their main proposition on the subject of church censures, on which, as will be perceived, the whole of Rastian controversy turned, with the intention of giving a clear and explicit expression of their judgment respecting the master principle and essence of the question. This they did in the following simple yet comprehensive proposition. The Lord Jesus, as King and Head of His Church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. The affirmation of this proposition was regarded both by the assembly and by the Erastian party as containing a complete rejection of the Erastian principle. For, in their clear style of reasoning, they perceived that if church government were admitted to be distinct from the civil magistrate, then the civil magistrate could exercise no jurisdiction in church matters, as that would be to break down the distinction. Against this proposition, accordingly, the two Erastians in the assembly, especially Coleman, directed their whole force of argument. Bailey says, to oppose the Erastian heresy, we find it necessary to say that Christ in the New Testament had instituted a church government distinct from the civil, to be exercised by the officers of the church, without commission from the magistrate. None in the assembly has any doubt of this truth, but one Mr. Coleman, a professed Erastian, a man reasonably learned, but stupid and inconsiderate, half a pleasant and of small estimation. But the lawyers in the parliament did blow up the poor man with much vanity, so he has become their champion to bring out the best way he can. Erastus' argument against the proposition. We give him a fair and free hearing, albeit we fear, when we have answered all he can bring and have confirmed with undeniable proofs our proposition, the houses, when it comes to them, shall scrape it out of the confession, for this point is their idol. The most of them are incredibly zealous for it. The Pope and the King were never more earnest for the headship of the church than the plurality of this parliament. Footnote, Bailey, Volume 2, page 360. End of footnote. 
after the assembly had debated this proposition for some time and were about to put it to the vote, Coleman was taken ill and sent a request to the assembly that they would delay it for a few days, as he had still some arguments to bring forward. The assembly complied, but after an illness of four or five days he expired, and the proposition was passed with a single dissentient vote of Lightfoot. In the account of this event contained in Neal's History of the Puritans, the names of those who subscribed this proposition according to the injunction of the Parliament are given, amounting to 52 and comprising all the men of chief eminence in the assembly, exclusive of the Scottish divines, who spoke but did not vote on any subject. Neil contradicts himself in his account, stating that the independence took the opportunity to withdraw, refusing absolutely to be concerned in the affair. Footnote. Neil, Volume 2, page 395. End of footnote. Yet in the list which he gives, there are the names of Goodwin, Nye, Greenhill, and Carter, all of them independents. The names of Burroughs, Bridge, and Simpson only being wanting to complete the whole of that party who signed the reasons of dissent, of which mention has been already made. Indeed, the whole of Neal's statement respecting the conduct of the Presbyterians is so warped and biased by prejudice that it presents a very unfair view not only of their characters but even of the facts that occurred in which they bore a leading part. But the assembly were not contented with thus cutting the heart out of the Erastian theory. They appointed a committee to prepare answers to the Parliament's questions, following out the principle of their own fundamental proposition. The work of the assembly, says Bailey, these bygone weeks has been to answer some very captious questions of the Parliament about the clear scriptural warrant for all the punctilious of the government. It was thought it would be possible for us to answer, and that in our answers there would be no unanimity, yet by God's grace we shall deceive them who are waiting for our halting. The committee has prepared very solid and satisfactory answers already to almost all the questions, wherein there is like to be a unanimity absolute in all things material, even with the independence. But because of the assembly's way and the independence miserable, unamendable design to keep all things from any conclusion, it's like we shall not be able to perfect our answers for some time. Therefore, I have put some of my good friends, leading men in the House of Commons, to move the assembly to lay aside our questions for a time and labor that which is most necessary, and all are crying for the perfecting of the confession of faith and catechism. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 378. This is a sufficient refutation of Neal's assertion that the Assembly durst not present their answers to Parliament for fear of a premier. End of footnote. 
The House of Commons followed the suggestion here alluded to, which was made about the middle of July, and as the course of events rolled on and matters of great importance occupied the attention of the Parliament, little more inquiry was made by the House respecting the Assembly's answers to these questions. Although the answers of the Assembly to these Erastian questions were not finally called for and printed by the Parliament, there is some reason to believe that their labor was not wholly lost to the public. For after the change of affairs which induced the Parliament to change its course, several months were allowed to pass away, lest the Commons might repeat their demand. But at length, on the 1st of December, 1646, a book was published entitled Just Divinum Regiminus Ecclesiasticae, or the divine right of church government asserted and evidenced by the Holy Scriptures, by sundry ministers of Christ within the city of London. This work is an express and direct answer to the Parliament's questions respecting divine right. Following these questions in their order, and giving to them a distinct reply point by point, confirming every argument by scripture proofs, and by quotations from the writings of learned and able ecclesiastical authors. Judging from internal evidence, in matter, manner, and style, it appears almost certain that this work at least embodies the substance of the answer prepared by the assembly, somewhat enlarged and modified by the city ministers, in whose name it was published. This idea is not set aside by the manner in which it is noticed by Bailey, who says the ministers of London have put out this day a very fine book, proving from scripture the divine right of every part of the presbyterial government. Footnote. Bailey, volume 2, page 411. End of footnote. We do not mean to assert that the work published by the city ministers was the identical production of the assembly, but that so much of the one was transfused into the other as to render them to all practical intents one work, and to relieve us from any cause to regret that the assembly's answer was not published. On the seventh day, after the appearance of this book, the House of Commons requested the assembly to give in their answers to the just venom queries as if to intimate their suspicion with regard to the authorship of the recent publication. But this demand was not again repeated, and no direct notice was taken of the book itself. But whether the work in question was to any considerable extent the production of the assembly divines or not, this at least is certain, that it is the most complete and able defense of Presbyterian church government that has yet appeared, and places its divine right on a foundation which will not easily be shaken. Footnote. A reprint of this work would be a very valuable contribution to the Presbyterian cause in the present day. End of footnote. Allusion has been made to events of great public importance, which contributed not a little to change the tone of the Parliament. These may be briefly mentioned. The military affairs of the year 1645 
terminated most disastrously for the king. All his armies were beaten out of the field, and he was constrained to retreat to Oxford with the wreck of his troops, and there to try what could be gained by intrigues and negotiations, since he could no longer maintain an open war. During the course of these negotiations, there arose a degree of alienation between the English Parliament and the Scottish Commissioners and Parliament, which threatened an open rupture. The English Parliament, influenced by Cromwell and his friends, were not desirous of peace, while the Scottish Commissioners made every effort to procure such terms as the King might accept without absolute submission. It was while their temper was in this high and heated state that the English Parliament treated the petitions of the city ministers and of the assembly itself with that scant courtesy, if not rather overbearing haughtiness, which has been already related. Elated with success, they could not brook the firm and fearless attitude assumed by the Presbyterian divines and resented the remonstrances of the Scottish Commissioners and Parliament as an improper interference with their imperial dignity. At this very juncture, the King, despairing of obtaining from the English Parliament any terms to which he could accede, left Oxford in disguise on the 27th of April, and after wandering about for a few days, arrived at the quarters of the Scottish army which was besieging Newark on the 5th of May, 1646. This was totally unexpected by either the army or the commissioners of Scotland, for though His Majesty had attempted to induce the Scottish General and Committee of Estates to espouse his cause against the Parliament, he had received such an answer from them as rendered it, in their opinion, impossible that he would put himself into their power. No sooner was this event known in London than the tone and temper of the Parliament was very sensibly changed. They perceived that it was no longer safe to treat the remonstrances of Scotland with disrespect, and as they were well aware how much the establishment of Presbyterian church government in both kingdoms was longed for by the Scottish church and people, they deemed it expedient to remove some of the obstacles by which this had been hitherto prevented. Up till this time, the ordinance of March 14th for the choice of ruling elders and the erection of presbyteries had not received the full ratification of the House of Lords, and even if it had, it would have been inoperative because the ministers were resolute not to become members of presbyteries so long as they were subject to such harassing interference and so bereft of their due powers as would have been the case under that ordinance. But on the 5th of June, both houses not only ratified the ordinance and on the 9th issued an order that it should be immediately put into execution. Footnote. Whitlock, page 213. End of footnote but also at the same time laid aside the clause respecting provincial commissioners to judge of new cases of scandal, thus removing the main obstacle to its reception by the ministers. This concession having been made, 
the assembly divines and the city ministers met at Zion College on the 19th of June and after some conference agreed upon the declaration expressing approbation of what had been done, specifying what was still defective, and declaring that they now conceive it to be their duty to put in practice the present settlement as far as they conceive it corresponded with the word of God. Footnote Bailey, Volume 2, page 377 Neil, Volume 2, page 396 in this instance, also the account of Neil is unfair and inaccurate, to use no harsher terms. End of footnote. The actual erection of presbyteries did not immediately follow this ordinance of Parliament, and consent of the Assembly and the city ministers. For the attention of the whole committee was strongly attracted to the negotiations between the King and the Parliaments of the two kingdoms as also between the two parliaments themselves. It scarcely falls within a province to relate even an outline of the political intrigues which distracted the kingdom for many months after His Majesty's retreat to the Scottish army. Yet so much must be stated as is necessary to explain the bearing of these events upon the proceedings of the Assembly. There is every reason to believe that the determination of the king to seek a retreat in the Scottish army was the result of a complication of circumstances and of intrigues, circumstances which he could not control, and intrigues in which he and his adherents were mutually deceivers and deceived. The fortune of war had been decisively against him, so that he could no longer expect to recover his power by conquest, and the demands of the Parliament rose with their success, so that he was constrained to contemplate the necessity of submission, if he could not contrive to divide his victorious antagonists. For that purpose he carried on a series of intrigues with all parties that would listen to him, particularly with the independence in both army and Parliament. The decided ground taken by the Scottish Parliament, Church, and Nation in behalf of their religious liberties, as stated in their covenant, which he regarded with intense hostility, rendered him unwilling to hold intercourse with them, and at the same time made it more than doubtful whether any measure of success could be expected to follow such an attempt. But the disagreement which took place between the English Parliament and the Scottish Commissioners seemed to give some reason to hope that, by skillful management, it might at last be possible to disunite the kingdoms, and through their disunion, to recover his own ascendancy over both. A French agent was sent to the Scottish army to sound the Committee of Estates, who were with it and upon receiving a half-favorable report from this agent, the king resolved to go in person to the Scottish army, hoping by such an apparent act of confidence in their honor and loyalty to render it impossible for them to do otherwise than espouse his cause. But his private agent deceived him. He deceived himself, and the Scottish generals and statesmen were not deceived. At the very first interview which the king had 
with his Scottish subjects, they gave him distinctly to know that they neither could nor would do anything contrary to their engagement with England in the Solemn League and Covenant, or to the spirit of that sacred document. And in a letter to the Committee of both Kingdoms, written immediately after His Majesty's arrival, they declared that they were astonished at the providence of the King's coming to their army, and desired that it might be improved to the best advantage for promoting the work of uniformity, for settling of religion and righteousness, and attaining of peace, according to the covenant and treaty, by advice of the parliaments of both kingdoms or their commissioners. And they further declare that there hath been no treaty betwixt his majesty and them, and in so deep a business they desire the advice of the committee of both kingdoms. Footnote. Whitlock, page 210. End of footnote. The king soon perceived that he had both overrated his own personal influence and undervalued the power of religious principle, that he had deceived himself and had now to do with men who were too sagacious to be deluded and too high principle to be turned from the path of integrity and truth. Finding that he was not likely to gain the object which he had in view, the king wrote to the English Parliament, requesting permission to come to London with safety, freedom, and honor, declaring that he was resolved to comply with the houses in what should be most for the good of the subjects. The Parliament itself had previously resolved to demand the king's person, declaring that in England the disposal of him belonged to the Parliament of England, and that the Scots army were in pay of the Parliament of England, that the king ought to be near his Parliament, and that this was consonant to the covenant. Footnote, Abidum, and a footnote. And in order to get quit of the Scottish army as quickly as possible, they voted a few days afterwards that this kingdom had no further need of the army of their brethren the Scots in this kingdom. So early was it apparent that the English Parliament was determined to obtain possession of their sovereign person and that the Scottish nation could not otherwise protect him than by friendly negotiations so as to secure a peace including his safety, or by declaring war against England in his behalf, contrary to their obligations in the Solemn League and Covenant, and contrary to their own determination to defend religious liberty, of which the King was the known and determined enemy. This they saw clearly, and being at the same time aware of the Republican inclinations of Cromwell and his strong party, they perceived that the only way in which they could interfere to preserve His Majesty without incurring the guilt of perjury was to persuade him, if possible, to sign the covenant and consent to the establishment of Presbyterian church government. But to this no force of argument no urgency of persuasion, no tearful earnestness of entreaty could induce him to consent, and after spending several months in fruitless negotiations, they were constrained to abandon the impracticable attempt 
and to leave him to pursue the fatal course along which he was driven by his own willful and infatuated obstinacy and by the pernicious advice of his narrow-minded and selfish prelatic counselors. It may be necessary here to state what it would not be difficult to prove beyond the power of dispute, did our limits and the nature of this work permit, that there was no connection whatever between the payment of the arrears due to the Scottish army and the surrendering of the king to the English parliament. A strong statement of fact is all that can here be given, but that may be enough, at least to every mind, not thickly encrusted with prejudice. For the time when the victories of the English armies rendered them able to cope with the king without the assistance of the Scottish forces, the Parliament was desirous to secure the entire glory and advantage of the triumph to themselves. For this purpose, they did everything in their power to irritate and disparage the Scottish army. They withheld the payment of the troops, constraining them to have recourse to the ungracious procedure of levying the means of subsistence from the inhabitants of the country, and they listened readily to the complaints which were made of these exactions. Thus hampered and discouraged, the Scottish army was unable to perform any signal exploit, while Fairfax and Cromwell received every aid and encouragement that Parliament could give. The Scottish army was naturally indignant at such treatment, and even entertained some apprehension that if Fairfax should take Oxford and obtain possession of the king's person, he would direct his force against them and compel them to fight or to retire without anything having been accomplished for which they had entered England. Their position at Newark, almost in the center of the kingdom, rendered this peculiarly hazardous, and therefore as soon as the king came to the army and Newark surrendered, they began their march northwards and ceased not till they arrived at Newcastle, where they took up their quarters, waiting the course of negotiations to secure peace, if practicable, and occupying a favorable position for war, if peace could not be obtained, and the king should be persuaded to sign the covenant. Even before the negotiations for peace commenced, on the 19th of May, the English Parliament voted that an hundred thousand pounds should be paid to the Scottish army one half after they should have surrendered Newcastle, Carlisle, and the other English garrisons in their possession, and the other half after their advance into Scotland. Footnote, Whitlock, page 211. End of footnote. The Scottish commissioners, knowing that the Parliament had not the means of obtaining a large supply of money without the consent and support of the City of London, gladly availed themselves of the idea which this offer suggested and demanded a much larger sum, with the strong conviction that the Parliament neither could nor would grant their demand, and that during the delay caused by this new element of negotiation, they might persuade the King to consent to the offered terms of peace. It's all our skill, says Bailey, to gain a little time, 
Their first offer to us was of 100,000 pounds sterling for the disbanding of our army. We, this day, August 18th, gave them in a paper wherein we were peremptor for more than double that sum for the present, beside the huge sums which we craved to be paid afterward. They have appointed a committee to confer with us. We are in some hopes of agreement. The money must be borrowed in the city, and here will be the question. They are our loving friends, but before they will part with more money, they will press hard the disbanding of their own army as well as ours. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 391. End of footnote. Again he says, when the king's unhappy answer to the commissioners came hither, it was our great care to divert this parliament from all deliberation about the king, till he had yet some more time of advice. We cast in the debate of our army's return and rendering the garrisons. On the 1st of September, the House of Commons held a long debate on the demand of the Scottish army's payment and on the 5th of the same month voted the sum of £200,000 on their advance to Scotland, if it could be raised and appointed a committee to manage the matter. Footnote, Whitlock, pages 225 and 226. End of footnote. But so far from this being the price of the King's surrender to the Parliament, the question respecting the disposal of his person continued to be keenly debated between the two kingdoms for above four months longer, before Scotland would consent to relinquish the desperate and hopeless task of endeavouring to save the infatuated and uncomplying king. During that period, Charles wrote repeatedly to the English Parliament, expressing his desire to be near them the more speedily and effectually to conclude the long-continued negotiations. Sadly and unwillingly, at last the Scottish Committee of Estates relinquished the care of His Majesty's person to the Commissioners of the English Parliament on the 30th of January, 1647, according to the terms of the agreement to that effect, which had been concluded between the two kingdoms and published in the form of a declaration by the Scottish Parliament on the 16th of January. The simple statement of these facts and dates ought to be enough to set aside forever the false and calumnious assertion that Scotland sold her king. The payment of the army's arrears were voted by the English Parliament on the 5th of September. The negotiations respecting the king were not concluded till the 16th of January. It was impossible to preserve him without a breach of the league with England, a violation of the national covenant, and the forcible retention of their sovereign's person against his own will, even when engaging in a perilous war against a more powerful kingdom in his defense. His own incurable dissimulation and obstinacy urged him on his fate which Scotland foresaw and deplored, but could not avert. To return to the subject more immediately within our province, although the Assembly Divines and the City Ministers had expressed their opinion 
that they could at length consent to put into practical operation the Presbyterian Church government as sanctioned by Parliament, they still complained of its defectiveness and were in no haste to form themselves into presbyteries. Repeated applications were made to Parliament for the removal of the obstacles that still remained, and on the 22nd of April, 1647, the Houses published resolutions entitled Remedies for Removing Some Obstructions to Church Government, in which they ordered letters to be sent to the several counties of England, requiring the ministers immediately to form themselves into distinct presbyteries, and appointing the ministers and elders of the several presbyteries of the province of London to hold their provincial assembly in the Convocation House of St. Paul's on the first Monday of May. According to this appointment, the first meeting of the Provincial Assembly or Synod of London was held on the 3rd of May, 1647. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 6, page 476. End of footnote. At the Synod, there were about 108 persons present, and Dr. Gouge was chosen prolocutor or moderator. The province of London was divided into twelve presbyteries, and in the formation of the synod, each presbytery chose two ministers and four elders as their representatives or commissioners. The ministers of Lancaster were also formed into presbyteries and a synod, and in many other counties they associated themselves for the management of ecclesiastical affairs though not in the regular form of presbyteries and synods. There was now no positive obstruction to the regular and final organization of Presbyterian church government, except the still pending treaties between the king and the parliament. Knowing the king's attachment to prelacy and his strong dislike to presbytery, the parliament did not wish to make a final and permanent establishment of the latter form of church government, till they should have endeavored to persuade His Majesty to consent, so that it might be engrossed in the treaty, and thereby obtain the conclusive ratification of the royal signature. But after the army had for a time overawed the Parliament, when the Houses again recovered something like the free exercise of their legislative functions, they voted that the king be desired to give his sanction to such acts as shall be presented to him for settling the Presbyterian government for three years, with a provision that no person shall be liable to any question or penalty, only for nonconformity to the said government, or to the form of divine services appointed in the ordinances and that such as shall not voluntarily conform to the said form of government and divine service shall have liberty to meet for the service and worship of God, and for exercise of religious duties and ordinances in a fit and convenient place, so as nothing be done by them to the disturbance of the peace of the kingdom, and provided that this extend not to any toleration of the popish religion, nor to any penalties imposed upon popish recusants, nor to tolerate the practice of anything contrary to the principles of Christian religion contained in the Apostles' Creed, 
as it is expounded in the Articles of the Church of England, nor to anything contrary to the point of faith, for the ignorance whereof men are to be kept from the Lord's Supper, nor to excuse any from the penalties for not coming to hear the Word of God on the Lord's Day in any church or chapel, unless he can show a reasonable cause or was hearing the Word of God preached or expounded elsewhere. These were the votes of the Lords, and to these the Commons added, that the Presbyterian government be established till the end of the next session of Parliament, which was to be a year after that date, that the tents and maintenance belonging to any church shall be only to such as can submit to the Presbyterian government, and to none other, that liberty of conscience granted shall extend to none that shall preach, print, or publish anything contrary to the first fifteen of the thirty-nine articles, except the eighth, that it extend not to popish recusants or taking away any penal laws against them, that the indulgence to tender consciences shall not extend to tolerate the common prayer. Footnote. Whitlock, pages 275 and 276. End of footnote. These votes were passed on the 13th day of October, 1647, and may be regarded as the final settlement of the Presbyterian Church government, so far as that was done by the Long Parliament, in accordance with the advice of the Westminster Assembly of Divines. For before the expiration of the period, named by the Parliament, the Parliament itself had sunk beneath the power of Cromwell, whose policy was to establish no form of church government, but to keep everything dependent upon himself, though his chief favors were bestowed upon the independents. There is but one point more connected with the arresting controversy which requires to be stated, namely, its effect upon the formation and ratification of the Confession of Faith. For a considerable time after the Assembly commenced its deliberations, the chief subjects which occupied its attention were the directories for public worship and ordination and the form of church government, including the power of church censure. So some satisfactory conclusions had been reached on these points. The Assembly abstained from entering upon the less agitating but not less important work of framing a confession of faith. But having completed their task so far as depended upon themselves, they appointed a committee to prepare and arrange the main propositions which were to be discussed and digested into a system by the assembly. The members of this committee were Dr. Hoyle, Dr. Gouge, Messrs. Hurl, Gattaker, Tuckney, Reynolds, and Vines, with the Scottish commissioners. These learned and able divines began their labors by arranging in the most systematic order the various great and sacred truths which God has revealed to man, and reduced these to thirty-two distinct heads or chapters, each having a title expressive of its subject. These were again subdivided into sections and the committee formed themselves into several subcommittees, each of whom took a specific topic, 
for the sake of exact and concentrated deliberation. When these subcommittees had completed their respective tasks, the whole was laid before the entire committee, and any alterations suggested and debated to all were of one mind. And when any title or chapter had been thus fully prepared by the committee, it was reported to the assembly, and again subjected to the most minute and careful investigation in every paragraph, sentence, and word. It is exceedingly gratifying to be able to state that throughout the deliberations of the assembly, when composing the Confession of Faith, there prevailed almost an entire and perfect harmony. There appear, indeed, to have been only two subjects on which any difference of opinion existed among them. The one of these was the doctrine of election, concerning which, as Bailey says, they had long and tough debates. Yet, he adds, thanks to God, all has gone right according to our mind. Footnote, Bailey, Volume 2, page 325. End of footnote. The other was that of which mention has been already made, namely, that the Lord Jesus, as King and Head of His Church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate, which appears as a fundamental proposition of the chapter entitled Of Church Centers. This proposition the Assembly manifestly intended and understood to contain a principle directly and necessarily opposed to the very essence of Erastianism, and it was regarded in the same light by the Erastians themselves. Consequently, it became the subject of long and earnest discussion, and was strenuously opposed by Lightfoot and Coleman, especially the latter. But Coleman falling ill and dying before the debate was concluded, it was carried the sole dissentient voice being that of Lightfoot. It does not appear that the Erastian lay assessors attempted to debate the point in the assembly, but wisely, or at least cunningly, reserved their opposition for the House of Commons, being aware that their strength lay in power, not argument. The whole influence of the Erastians did not succeed in modifying no, not by one word, the statement of the Assembly's faith on this vital point. Although some have had the hardihood to assert that they condescended to compromise the question. The conduct of the Assembly in the Erastian controversy contrasts strongly with their conduct in the Independent controversy. With the Independents, there were many instances of compromise and accommodation or at least of attempts in that direction. With the Erastians, none. No, not so much as one. They could not compel the Parliament to give its sanction to all that they proposed, but they could and did state freely and fearlessly what they believed to be the truth, earnestly and urgently petitioning that it might be ratified, then leaving the legislative powers to accept or reject on their own responsibility. To the independents, on the other hand, they showed the utmost leniency, and while they could not abandon their own conscientious convictions, they were extremely reluctant to deal harshly with the conscientious scruples of men whom they regarded as brethren. Some discussion took place 
on the 31st chapter in the Confession respecting synods and councils, but that subject also was carried in the express language of the Assembly and without any Erastian modification. The first half of the Confession was laid before the Parliament early in October 1646, and on the 26th of November the remainder was produced to the Assembly in its completed form when the prolocutor returned thanks to the committees in the name of the Assembly for their great pains in perfecting the work committed to them. It was then carefully transcribed and on the 3rd of December 1646 it was presented to Parliament by the whole Assembly in a body under the title of the humble advice of the Assembly of Divines and others, now by the authority of Parliament sitting at Westminster, concerning a confession of faith. On the 7th, Parliament ordered 500 copies of it to be printed for the members of both houses, and that the Assembly do bring in their marginal notes to prove every part of it by Scripture. Footnote, Whitlock, page 233, and a footnote. There is strong reason to believe that the House of Commons demanded the insertion of the scripture text for the purpose of obtaining an additional period of delay, as indeed Bailey pretty plainly intimates. The Assembly accordingly resumed their task, and after encountering a number of interposing obstacles, again produced the Confession of Faith with full scriptural proofs annexed to all its proposition, and laid it before the Parliament on the 29th of April, 1647. The thanks of the House were given to the Assembly for their labors in this important matter, and 600 copies were ordered to be printed for the use of the Houses and the Assembly, and no more, and that none presumed to reprint the same till further orders. Footnote, Rushworth, Volume 6, page 473, and a footnote. The appointed number of copies having been printed, they were delivered to the members of both houses by Mr. Byfield on the 19th of May, when it was resolved to consider the whole production, article by article, previous to its being published with the sanction of Parliament, as a confession of faith held by that church on which they meant to confer the benefits of a national establishment. But the deliberations of the Parliament were interrupted by the insurrection of the army, and the numerous, protracted, and unsatisfactory negotiations in which they were engaged with the King, so that they had not completed their examination of the Confession till March 1648. On the 22nd day of that month, a conference was held between the two houses to compare their opinions respecting the confession of faith, the result of which is thus stated by Rushworth. The Commons this day, March 22nd, at a conference presented the Lords with the confession of faith passed by them, with some alterations, namely, that they do agree with their Lordships and so with the Assembly in the doctrinal part and desire the same may be made public, that this kingdom and all the reformed churches of Christendom may see the Parliament of England differ not in doctrine. In some particulars there were some phrases altered, 
as in that of tribute being due to the magistrates, they put dues. To the degree of marriage, they refer to the law established. Particulars in discipline are recommitted. And for the title, they make it not a confession of faith, because not so running, I confess, at the beginning of every section, but articles of faith agreed upon by both houses of Parliament as most suitable to the former title of the 39 Articles. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 7, page 1035. End of footnote. Such was the last positive enactment made by the English Parliament respecting the Confession of Faith. For the subsequent mention made of it and of other particulars in Presbyterian Church government during the course of their negotiations with the King were not enactments, but attempts at accommodation with His Majesty, with a view of endeavouring to secure a satisfactory basis for a permanent peace to church and state. And it will be observed that the only material defect mentioned in this reported conference between the Houses is that particulars and discipline are recommitted. These particulars are said to have been the 30th chapters of Church Centers, the 31st chapter of Synods and Councils, and the 4th section of the 20th chapter of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. The enumeration of these particulars rests on the authority of Neil. Footnote, Neil, Volume 2, page 429. End of footnote which is by no means unimpeachable, but it is in itself probable, being quite consistent with the views of the Erastians, whose chief hostility was directed against the power of church discipline, of which the chapters specified contain an explicit statement according to the judgment of the assembly. It is of some importance to remark that these particulars in discipline were not rejected by the English Parliament, as is generally asserted, but merely recommitted or referred to a committee to be more maturely considered. But as the Parliament itself not long afterwards fell under the power of the army and was at length forcibly dissolved by Cromwell, the committee never returned a report, and consequently these particulars were never either formally rejected or ratified by the Parliament of England. The fact of their having been recommitted is of itself enough to prove that they were not, in the estimation of such men as Selden and Whitlock, susceptible of any rasping interpretation. Although such an opinion has been hazarded by men, certainly not a little their inferiors in learning, legal acumen, and intellectual power. A full account of the literature of the rasping controversy would be an extremely interesting and highly important production, but to attempt anything more than a very brief outline of it here would lead to a digression far beyond our limits. We shall therefore mention almost solely those works which were either written by some of the Westminster divines or were closely connected with the proceedings of that venerable assembly. A few preliminary sentences, however, may be of use to introduce the subject. During the earliest ages of Christianity, 
the only relationship in which the civil magistrate and the church stood towards each other was that which exists between persecutors and the persecuted. When at length Constantine avowed himself a Christian, persecution ceased, and the more friendly relation of granting and receiving protection became that between the state and the church. But Christianity had already become deeply tainted with the anti-Christian leaven. Prelacy had raised its haughty head, equally inclined to domineer over what it regarded as the inferior orders of the clergy and over the people, and to arrogate to itself exemption from the control of the civil magistrate, even in civil matters. A protracted struggle ensued between the imperial and royal powers and the Bishop of Rome, the issue of which was not merely an exemption of ecclesiastical matters and even persons from civil authority, but the establishment of a supremacy over civil rulers and civil matters wielded by the Romish hierarchy and forming a complete spiritual and civil despotism. This fearful and degrading despotism was overthrown by the Reformation, and although the great and wise Christian divines and patriots by whose instrumentality the Reformation was effected were unable entirely to perfect their work, yet they all, more or less clearly, indicated their judgment that the two jurisdictions, civil and ecclesiastical, ought to be and to remain coordinate and distinct, mutually supporting and supported, but each abstaining from interference with the other's intrinsic and inherent rights, privileges, and powers. In some countries, this high and true theory was clearly developed, in others more obscurely, and in some not at all. In no part of Reformed Christendom was it so distinctly stated and so fully realized as in Scotland, and nowhere was it so thoroughly rejected as in England. In England, indeed, the exact counterpart of the Romish system was established, the king's ecclesiastical supremacy rendering him equally judge of ecclesiastical as of civil matters. It was soon found that in this as in all other things, extremes meet. The king, by a slight transfer of terms, became a civil pope, and the country was oppressed by a complete civil and spiritual despotism. In the meantime, the great principle of truth and freedom, the principle of distinct and coordinate civil and ecclesiastical jurisdictions, was assailed on the continent by Erastus, and became a subject of speculative thought and controversial literature. Unfortunately for the cause of truth and freedom, the great men of the Reformation had nearly all departed from the scene of their labors and triumphs before the Erastian theory was fully brought forward, so that it was not at once met and overthrown as it would otherwise have been. And besides, it was too accordant with the views and feelings of men of secular minds not to obtain a ready credence and a hearty welcome from politicians who can form no higher idea of a church than an engine of state, from lawyers who can conceive no higher rule than statutory enactments, 
and from irreligious and immoral men who equally detest and fear the strict and pure severity of divinely authorized Christian discipline. In England also, the despotism of the prelatic hierarchy tended to produce in the minds of all zealous asserters of freedom an instinctive dread of ecclesiastical power and rendered many men Erastians from terror and in self-defense, not because they had studied the theory and been convinced of its truth. Such men were ready to oppose the establishment of Presbyterian church government on the ground of divine right, not because they were convinced that no system of church government can justly lay claim to an authority so high and sacred, but because they were apprehensive that it should produce a species of spiritual despotism as oppressive as that which they had just been striving to abolish. In vain did the Scottish statesmen and divines answer and refute their objections. Their fears were not removed, and fear is a mental emotion that cannot be set aside by argument. But Selden, Whitlock, Lightfoot, and Coleman took up the subject on other grounds, which, though difficult, were not equally unassailable by reason. Their chief argument was one of analogy, although, as they used it, the appearance which it bore was that of identity. They held that the Christian system ought to resemble, or rather be identical with, the system of the Mosaic dispensation, and they attempted to prove that there were not two distinct and coordinate courts, one civil and the other ecclesiastical, among the Hebrews, but that there was a mixed jurisdiction of which the king was the supreme and ultimate head and ruler, and that, consequently, the civil courts determined all matters, both civil and ecclesiastical, and inflicted all punishments, both such as affected person and property, and such as affected a man's religious privileges, properly termed church centers. From this they concluded that the civil magistrate in countries avowedly Christian ought to possess an equal or identical authority and ought consequently to be the supreme and ultimate judge in all matters, both civil and ecclesiastical, inflicting or removing the penalties of church censure equally with those affecting person and property. The arguments on which they most relied were drawn from rabbinical lore rather than from the Bible itself, although they were very willing to obtain the appearance of its support by ingenious versions or perversions of peculiar passages of Scripture. Selden's argument has been already stated and need not be repeated. The value of Lightfoot's authority may be estimated somewhat lower than is usually done if we take into consideration not merely the amount of his learning, but the soundness or the reverse of his judgment. As, for instance, he strenuously maintained that the Jews are utterly and finally rejected, that those of them who embraced Christianity in the time of Christ and the apostles were the remnant to be saved, and that there neither then was nor ever shall be any universal calling of them. Footnote, Lightfoot, Volume 1, 
page 165. End of footnote. He held also that the expressions, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and binding and loosing, had no reference to discipline, but merely to doctrine, in which opinion he differed from almost every person, both before and since his time. His opinion of the Septuagint was equally at variance with the views of the most eminently learned and judicious men. In short, whatever may be said of his extensive and minute rabbinical lore, it is impossible to regard his judgment as entitled to much deference. Consequently, his advocacy of Erastian principles will not avail much for their support. Mention has already been made of Coleman's sermon, preached before the House of Commons on the 30th of July, 1645. That sermon must be noticed as part of the Erastian literature, not so much on account of its own merits as on account of other works to the composing of which it gave occasion. Towards the end of the sermon, various advices and directions are given as calculated to promote the peace and welfare of the kingdom. And of these, one point on which Coleman dwelt strongly was the unity of the church and the best way to procure that unity. For this he gives several directions, of which the following are the chief. 1. Establish as few things dur divino as can well be. Hold out the practice, but not the ground. 2. Let all precepts held out as divine institutions have clear scriptures, an occasional practice, a phrase upon the by, a thing named, are two weak grounds to uphold such a building. I could never yet see how two coordinate governments, exempt from superiority and inferiority, can be in one state. And in scripture no such thing is found that I know of. 3. Lay no more burden of government upon the shoulders of ministers than Christ hath plainly laid upon them. Let them have no more hand therein than the Holy Ghost clearly gives them. The ministers will have other work to do, and such as will take up the whole man. I ingeniously profess I have a heart that knows better how to be governed than to govern. I fear an ambitious ensnarement, and I have cause. I see what raised prelacy and papacy to such a height, and what their practices were, being so raised. Give us doctrine, take you the government. Give me leave to make this request, in the name of the ministry. Give us two things, and we shall do well. Give us learning, and give us competency. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.sw.org.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.